Welcome to In All Things, a podcast of Calvary Moravian Church. In this lecture series, you will hear from Rev. Dr. Craig Atwood, who will give three talks focused on specific periods in Moravian history. We hope you enjoy and will subscribe to this podcast for more content like this. This week, uh, we're going to be looking at the renewal of the Moravian Church under Zinzendorf, and this is going to be a lot more familiar for many of you. Uh, Some of these things we talk about every year in church. And then next week, we'll focus on the history of the southern province. So we'll, uh, uh, we'll bring this to, um, to North Carolina next time. Um, and keep in mind, Moravians tend to distinguish the periods of history, calling the, um, the early Moravian church the ancient unity, and this the renewed Moravian church. Um, uh, but I got to tell you, Uh, There's a lot of debate among historians over how much connection there actually is between the two periods of Moravian history. Uh, We're not going to solve all of that tonight, but I do want you to know that it is, um, uh, there's some some questions there. According to legend, um, when John Amos Comenius led his flock uh, across the mountains into Poland when they went into exile, he offered a prayer to God that God would preserve a hidden seed in Czech lands that would flourish in the future, meaning that they were leaving the church behind but hoped uh, God would bring it back to life. Um, and so Moravians have often referred to the period between the, um, the exile and the renewal in Herrenhut as the time of the hidden seed. Some have seen a lot of significance in the fact that that was just about exactly 100 years from the time uh, Comenius left until the, um, the renewal. Others have seen the period of the hidden seed much shorter because the unity of the brethren actually continued in Poland um, up until the time of Zinzendorf. So, um, But the reality is there's not a lot of historical evidence um, for a hidden seed having endured. Uh, What we have is that some of the families that had been related to the old unity uh, who had been forced to become Catholic in Bohemia and Moravia kept alive memories of the, of the unity. They, they knew they had not al- their families had not always been Catholic. Uh, we do know that some people had hidden away their Czech Bibles. Um, one reason these Czech Bibles are so valuable today is very few survived Catholic persecution. Most of them were burned. Uh, but we do have copies of the Bible. Uh, we also know that uh, John Amos Comenius had tried to keep the memory alive and was publishing things um, for the people in uh, Czech lands and elsewhere. Uh, and much of this was around the place where Comenius had been pastor, a place called Fullneck. Uh, got one of the tour groups I took several years ago. We went to uh, went to Fullneck and. Um, once again, the bus driver, uh, we were trying to find a little place called Zukdal, where many of these refugees had come from, and the bus driver had a great deal of trouble finding it, and we finally stopped and asked a man on a bicycle 
uh, very rotund man on a bicycle, and he just decided to uh, to guide the bus. So we're we're driving down the highway behind this uh, Czech man on a bicycle, but we found it. Um, now, part of the story of the renewal of the Moravian Church uh, connects to a broader religious movement in Germany called Pietism. Um, we can't. You know, we could spend a lot of time talking about German pietism, but it was a renewal movement within the Lutheran Church uh, that focused on um, trying to make um, Christianity more a thing of the people instead of just of the pastors. And so the pietists helped invent uh, uh, things like pastoral visits, uh, pastors coming to visit you uh, in your home. Um, Sunday school classes and various uh, prayer groups and things like this. The pietists were very frustrated that so much of uh, Protestantism had developed into just animosity between denominations. Uh, so, you know, often you would go to church and the sermon would be all about why everyone else is so wrong and we're the only ones who are right. Thankfully, we don't do that anymore, um, you know, and arguing over particularly obtuse doctrines uh, and things, uh, pastors showing off how uh, smart they were instead of how caring they were, etc. cetera. Uh, and so the pietist pastors wanted to, to change the way church worked uh, and make it much more accessible to the people. They... Um, uh, they wanted people to experience what was called a conversion, uh, a change of life. Uh, they wanted Christianity to be expressed in practical terms. Um, they encouraged the laity to study scripture, uh, lead prayer groups, and also set up charities for the poor, orphanages, uh, um, medical clinics, uh, pharmacies, etc. Just all kinds of charitable activities intended to make people's lives happier and healthier. And the center of this was a place in Germany called Halle. Uh, and um, they had this whole extensive network. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure they invented the fundraising newsletter. Uh, they would send out reports and say, you know, we're building this, uh, this orphanage and uh, it would go a lot faster if you give us money uh, kinds of things. And one of the things they built was a school and that's where Zinzendorf went to school when he was 10 years old. From 10 to 16, he attended school there uh, and that will be an important part of our story. Uh, but there was also a place... Um, kind of between Poland and Moravia called Silesia. Some of you may have heard of it or even been there. Uh, and it had recently become part of Germany. And so the um, uh, evangelists are going in to convert people to Lutheranism. And there was a huge revival in a city in Silesia. And one of the people who was converted was a, a Czech man named Christian David, uh, who was, had nothing to do with the unity of the brethren. Uh, he was Catholic, raised Catholic, 
but he was one of those people who had gone on a spiritual quest. Uh, he heard the Bible read for the first time when he was in his 20s, uh, was dissatisfied. He travels around. He was a soldier for a while. He was a carpenter, uh, kind of a ne'er-do-well in some ways. And he had this conversion experience uh, in the revival, and it transformed his life. And he began sneaking back into Moravia to preach illegally. Uh, and the place where he started finding people to listen was this little town of Zukdal, near where Comenius had been pastor and where there was a, a memory of the, the old brethren. Uh, and it's out of his work that we get a, a group of... Uh, yeah, initially, it was just four young men uh, who decided to uh, leave their homes and wanted to go to Poland to connect with the unity of the brethren. Uh, but on the way, uh, they had heard about this guy, Count Zinzendorf, who was 22 years old, just got married, just got his estate from his mother, a grandmother. He had to buy it from her. Uh, he's setting himself up, and he is a pietist um, and uh, very close to the preacher who did the revival. And so they come and see Zinzendorf and decide to stay. Uh, and they get permission to, to settle there. Um, and Christian David is going to um, uh, fell the first tree for what will become the community of Herrenhut, which becomes a magnet for other Moravians coming. So, who is Zinzendorf? Uh, people used to tease me that uh, my daughter was three years old and she could point at Zinzendorf's picture and go, Zinzendorf! Uh, and she had a stuffed bear that was, that was called Dorf for Zinzendorf. Um, we could spend, you know, several weeks just on Zinzendorf. Uh, tonight, just want to mention that uh, Zinzendorf was a German nobleman. Uh, he was one of those people who had a lot more status than money. Uh, you know, if you know anything about the nobility, it's all hierarchies, and his family was near the top. Uh, they were originally from Austria, and they had to leave Austria because they were Protestant. So they had had this experience of uh, going into exile 100 years before he met the Moravians. Uh, he was educated at Halle. He uh, met Lutheran missionaries. He was engaged in theological pursuits. When he went off to university, he wanted to study theology. And his, um, uh, his guardian told him, absolutely not. You're going to study law because you're going to go to work in the government for the king. And so Zinzendorf did that and then took all the theology classes without telling anyone that's what he was doing. Um, he um, absolutely hated, uh, hated law, but he, he did learn to be a lawyer. Uh, and he took over this estate. It was called Bertelsdorf. And there's a village there, a church. He got, as nobleman, he appointed the pastor of the church. And he chose a Lutheran pietist as pastor, a great preacher. Um, and then, you know, these weird Moravians show up. Um, 
he also offered refuge to people called the Schwenkfelters, who had been uh, declared heretical in the time of Martin Luther. So it wasn't just Moravians that he uh, looked out for. Uh, and his estate manager picked out, a, picked out a place that was on the main highway, but nobody lived there. Uh, it was kind of a swampy, uh, not very good land, and said, you know, if y'all can make something of this, you can stay here. Uh, it took a while, but they managed to um, uh, uh, find water, dig a well, uh, and uh, started building houses. Um, and soon, uh, you know, people are still going back to Moravia, and more people start coming. Uh, and they, this is entirely illegal. And up until, you know, a couple of hundred years ago in Europe, if you lived on someone's estate, they owned you. You could not leave without their permission. Uh, and the authorities did not give permission to these people to leave. Uh, so keep in mind, when we talk about the renewal of the Moravian Church, this whole story, the whole mission, everything that follows, happened because a powerful person protected illegal refugees who had sought shelter on his place. Uh, protected them so much that uh, when the king... Uh, was threatening to deport them all, and Zinzendorf managed to convince the government that these are good, hardworking people and they're no threat. Instead of deporting the Moravians, they exiled Zinzendorf. <laughs> so for more than a decade, Zinzendorf was exiled from his homeland because of caring for these Moravians and for, for being a little wacky in his own way. Um, in all, it was about uh, 500 people who moved. It wasn't a great number. And finally, the government absolutely forbid it, and they could take no more. Uh, and Zinzendorf's in trouble with the emperor, the king, everything else. Um, some tried to leave and were arrested. Some of their family members were arrested when they left. Um, at least one Moravian, who was named David Nitschmann, was actually, actually died in prison. Uh, because of preaching in 1729, so they call him David Nitschmann the Martyr. Now, that's all an important story in its own right, uh, but what happens uh, after five years, uh, we still celebrate in the Moravian Church. August 13th, 1727. Uh, many congregations have a love feast or Holy Communion or both, um, we, um, in the Moravian Church, we refer to this as the renewal of the Moravian Church. Outside historians often call it the beginning of the Moravian Church, uh, that this was something new and extraordinary that happened. And keep in mind, when Zinzendorf started welcoming these uh, Schwenkfelters and Moravians, they also start picking up a lot of other people of uh, various kinds of uh, religious seekers, uh, wanderers who get interested. It's a it's very diverse place. Um, and um, it will probably surprise you to know that when you get a bunch of strong-willed people together, especially people who have made great sacrifice to be where they are, 
they don't always agree with each other. And indeed, in the first five years of Herrenhut, people fought over everything you could possibly fight about in Christianity. Uh, you know, one of the big fights was we had some were strict Calvinists who believed that before God put the earth on its foundations, he determined exactly who was going to go to heaven and who was going to go to hell, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, you had others who believed that, no, Jesus died for all, and you make your choice of your eternal fate. There were some who believed that all people are going to go to heaven because God's love is so expansive. Um, huge fights over this. Huge fights over how to interpret scripture. Huge fights over whether you should go to church or not. Uh, especially since they had to go to the Lutheran church in Bertelsdorf. And especially for the Moravians, you know, the practices there seemed too Catholic. You know, they had to kneel before the pastor and confess their sins and all this, that, and the other. So just a lot of turmoil from the beginning. And then it got worse. Uh, you know, sometimes conflicts just kind of escalate and you begin to get the people who show up precisely because there is conflict uh, and they want to exploit it. And one of those people was a man by the name of Kruger who believed that he was a prophet of God um, and that the, the end is nigh. The end of the world is coming. He didn't have billboards, but, you know, it's like we see sometimes on the interstate, you know, the world will end on uh, um, August 12th or whatever. Kruger is that kind of guy. Uh, very much the book of Revelation, book of Daniel. Uh, he gets people really stirred up. Uh, he declares that the pastor is the uh, um, uh, the the prophet oh, is the beast of the apocalypse in Revelation and Zinzendorf is his prophet. So, you know, he's essentially saying Zinzendorf is the antichrist. Nobody should listen to him. Christian David, the guy who started all of this, becomes part of Kruger's camp. Christian David is so convinced that God is going to send fire and brimstone to destroy Herrenhut and all of its wickedness before Christ comes back that he actually built a new cabin and turned it facing away from town so he wouldn't have to see the destruction. He, uh, you know, it's like Jeremiah uh, in the Old Testament. So, you're Lord of the Manor, literally. These people are your subjects. The king is telling you, you need to send these people back to Moravia because they don't belong here. You've got somebody parading around town shouting, you know, the end is coming and Zinzendorf is the, you know, the Antichrist, uh, you know, repent. Uh, what do you do? For me, I would kick them off. I, I don't have a lot of patience for, uh, for people calling me the Antichrist. It's happened a few times. I'm not real patient with it. Um, Zinzendorf did something extraordinary. He actually decided to meet with every family uh, in their homes. He invited them into his home, into the manor house. Um, he asked them, why did you come here? And listen to their story. 
and he told him what was in his heart and what he was thinking and what, you know, what, how he loved the Savior. Uh, they had Bible study, and they didn't study the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel. They studied the letters of John. Uh, they studied the meaning of brotherly love. And people's hearts began to change. Uh, Kruger eventually goes his merry way, dies in a mental asylum uh, somewhere in Germany, Hamburg, I think. Um, they decided that doctrine is not what's going to save us. That the Bible doesn't actually say you go to heaven because you believe certain doctrines. Uh, we can disagree on fundamental things and it doesn't affect our salvation. But if we treat each other with anger and malice and dishonesty, that might. In other words, Christianity is how you live. Now, they had doctrines. They believed in doctrines and things. They're just, it's just like there's a lot more latitude in here allowed from Scripture. Faith and love are the essential. And brotherly love is the most important fruit of faith. Well, out of this experience, uh, Zinzendorf, as Lord of the Manor, draws up a document giving instructions on how how you're going to live if you live in Heronhut. And every village had instructions, you know, this, uh, the, having instructions was not, or rules is nothing new. And if you read what we call the brotherly agreement, uh, my students just read it last week for class, and they were kind of surprised. It even talks about, you know, making sure you pick up your garbage and you keep the streets clean and you keep you know, people safe. But much of the brotherly agreement that Zinzendorf wrote was actually on how to deal with conflict. That if I got a problem with Chaz, who should I talk to first? Yeah, to Bishop Burkett and say, you know, <laughs> Chaz said something to me that was hurtful. And, <laughs> and I think he should be banished. No, you were, you were right. I should talk to Chaz first. Uh, I should tell him I've been hurt by what you said or, or what you did. And if Chaz and I can't work it out, what should we do? That's when we go to Bishop Burkett together. Thanks a lot. Yeah, and it's specific. In the, uh, we've always needed a Bishop Burkett in the Moravian Church because of the brotherly agreement. But no, you go to the elders. It doesn't have to be a bishop. It could be a layperson. But there, there are people you go to to work it out. Uh, I don't know if you all know what passive-aggressive behavior is, but I'm surprised about uh, there's a long section of the uh, brotherly agreement that is just against pastor passive-aggressive behavior, uh, and uh, you don't gossip, you don't spread stories, you don't undermine people, uh, you don't accuse people falsely. And if you have done that, and you are shown that you are wrong, you apologize, you overcome it. Um, there, part of the, the, the most important thing in the brotherly agreement was that if you live in Heronhut, the only reason to be in Heronhut is 
because you love the Savior. Uh, so Hoot is going to be a new type of community. Never in the history of Christianity has a place been like Hoot, which is that everyone who lives there lives there for religious purposes and everything you do in life serves the religious community. If you could imagine, um, you know, you know monasteries and convents. Imagine a monastery or convent where you can have marriage and families. And that's kind of what they're doing in Heronhut. And that um, uh, there's no distinction between the church and the secular society. Uh, so the, um, um, you know, why do you keep the streets clean? Because you love your neighbor, not because you fear punishment. And you seek out the good. They also elected their own leaders in Heronhut. Uh, leaders for the church, leaders for the community, many of whom were uneducated people. You know, folks who, um, whose, whose hands were a lot more calloused than mine. Uh, from um, men and women as well. Uh, this is where I see a connection with the ancient unity that I think a lot of historians ignore, is that there were female elders as well as male elders. Uh, they chose their own officers, you know, who would make sure that, uh, that no one goes hungry? Uh, who would visit you when you're sick to make sure that you're taking your medicine and that you're doing well? Who will resolve disputes? Who will teach the children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and, um, and Zinzendorf, they were still part of the Lutheran parish. Technically, they're Lutherans. But Zinzendorf allowed them to have a variety of their own religious gatherings, prayer services, and uh, uh, study groups and things. And so this brotherly agreement uh, was written by Zinzendorf, but after much discussion. Uh, and all of the male heads of households, because that's the way it was done in those days, who were going to stay in Heronhut signed the brotherly agreement. What happened to those who didn't? They could move half a mile away to Bertelsdorf. There was, there was no pressure on this. Uh, you'd be just like anyone else. You could move on anywhere you wanted to. In the early days, there's a lot of coming and going. There were some famous people in Heronhut that never stayed. Um, but if you stayed, these were the rules that you agreed to. Um, and then Zinzendorf read a document that Comenius wrote describing the ancient unity of the brethren and its rules, and he translated it into German. It was written in Latin and read it to the people. He actually paraphrased it. It's not, it's, yeah, there's, there's, it's, a, it's a fuzzy translation. Uh, but the reason he did this was to show those Moravians who had come that what they had created in the five years at Herrenhut in principle was the same as what Comenius described. Details were different. And it's interesting, it wasn't an attempt to recreate the unity, it was they created something and then saw the similarities. Um, and then, after they had lived by this brotherly agreement for about three months, that's when we have the great August 13th experience. And you hear about that every year, uh, so we won't say much about it. Other than that experience uh, was um, 
They perceived it as the Holy Spirit blessing the work they had done. That what had been hard work before, which is going to people saying, I'm really sorry I called you the Antichrist and that you're leading us all into hell and perdition. Uh, I, I feel really bad about that and it's not true. That's hard work. Holy, uh, experience of Holy the 13th was this great feeling of release and overwhelming love and an emotional unity that had not been there before. Um, and after that, after 1727, the community really takes off. And we can't do all the details, you know, in a short period of time, but uh, they begin to send teachers and evangelists in various places in Europe. Um, they began looking for mission. It's only five years after August 13th that the first Moravian missionaries cross the Atlantic to come to St. Thomas. They go to Greenland, all of these things. They also develop a lot of uh, traditions and, um, and new rituals in Herrenhut, uh, some of which we continue to practice. So just um, in a few years, the practice of the daily text uh, that there would be an, a Bible verse from the Old Testament chosen for every day that the whole community would receive and meditate upon. Well, Zinzendorf was alive, he chose them. Uh, after he died, ever since then, they've been chosen by lot uh, in a sacred ceremony. Eventually, they added a New Testament text, too. Uh, the Easter sunrise service. 1728, it was the single men uh, who decided to stay up all night on the night before Easter, reading the Bible, singing, praying, talking, uh, um, you know, like you do to keep yourself awake at three in the morning. Uh, and then they went out to the cemetery, the God's Acre, in conscious imitation, not of the men of the New Testament, but of the women of the New Testament who went to the tomb. And this became a ritual, and eventually there's a whole liturgy that we still celebrate here in Salem. Uh, music was central to the life in Herrenhut. Uh, some of the worship services were entirely in song. It's called a Zingstunde. Uh, but all of the worship services, singing was a big part of it. Believe it or not, at one time, I would not have been made a Moravian minister because I can't carry a tune. And the major purpose of a minister was to lead the singing in the worship service. Uh, the whole communion service would be sung. But it was more than that. They are singing while they work. They are singing in the household. And they are writing hundreds of hymns in these early days. Some of them are terrible. Uh, some of them are wonderful. The big thing is creativity is just overflowing and uh, we kept the ones that were good, let the other ones go away. Uh, the Love Feast. You know, I've, I've been to Love Feast at Home Church in Calvary and you know, they're very, very formal affairs. Um, you know, it took a while for the love feast tradition to develop, but I do have to, there's, there's one popular Moravian myth that is probably not true. The love feast did not start on August 13th. Uh, the story you've always heard uh, is that Zinzendorf sent food at August 13th from the kitchens 
One reason we're pretty sure this didn't happen is the kitchens in the manor house weren't working at that time. The house is still under renovation. Uh, the true story, I actually think, is uh, you know less dramatic but more interesting. Uh, Zinzendorf learned about love feasts from studying Christian history. Uh, the early church practiced love feasts. They're mentioned in the New Testament. And he had already started doing love feasts before he uh, met the Moravians. Uh, and this was an attempt to bring the New Testament into the modern age. Uh, and it, it didn't matter what you ate. It didn't matter what you drink, drank. I get so tired of people fighting over whether coffee or whatever. Uh, the first love feast in North Carolina was pumpkin mush, people. Um, what makes a love feast a love feast is two things. They are love and feast. That's it. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's just a meal held in love in the context of worship. Um, and um, that started early in Heron Hoop. Some of the ones we don't observe now were just as important, such as washing feet. Why would you, why would you wash feet in church? A little louder? Exactly, Jesus told you to. <laughs> My classes are a lot like children's sermons. The answer is always Jesus, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's there in the New Testament. It's, uh, and they are trying to do what Jesus told them to do, but it becomes a very important ritual often used to reconcile people who have had trouble with the community, uh, to welcome new members. Uh, eventually, that died out there. Uh, the kiss of peace. They used to greet each other with a kiss on the street and church, it became a formal ritual. If you joined the church, uh, you had to be kissed. Um, and um, men and men, women and women, never, never cross uh, that. Again, that will eventually die out. Uh, but it's New Testament. Uh, prayer vigils, all-night prayer watches. Most important was New Year's Eve, but that wasn't the only time. And out of the prayer watches developed the 24-hour yearly prayer watch. Um, again, people say it lasted 100 years. It didn't really. It came and went. It ebbed and flowed. Uh, but since 1957, it's been observed unbroken in the Moravian Church that at every minute of the day, somewhere in the world, there is a Moravian praying for the world. Uh, and that all starts in Heronhut. The um, most um, amazing innovation, because uh, all of that is New Testament. That's, you know, you know, you're taking biblical stuff and you're rethinking it and you're, you're, you're playing around with it. There's a spirit of experimentation and then you figure out, okay, some things work better than other things. The most amazing thing they did in Heronhut was uh, create what we call the choir system. Have any of you all ever dressed up in Moravian costumes, especially the women, you know, at candle tea or something um, with the, uh, the, the ribbons? Uh, all of that starts in the early days of Herrenhut. Believe it or not, it, it's not something Zinzendorf 
just, you know, he's not just sitting around one day going, huh, I wonder how we can do this. It was the single men again who decided that they were going to um, get a house and live together and cook together and eat together and pray together and worship together and pull their money. So, you know, the different people have different jobs that are better paid. We're going to pull all our resources and this, that, and the other. And it worked so well that the single women started doing it. Anna Nitschman, uh, who was um, one of those Moravian refugees, a uh, young woman, she and her friends uh, start uh, the Single Sisters Group. Uh, it's harder for them to set up separate housing, so some of them still lived in their family house, some were servants, but they still gathered and so forth. And this began to work so well that over time, the system gets extended to um, married men uh, meeting together, uh, married women, uh, children's choirs, and widows and widowers. They don't all get separate lodging. Uh, it's interesting that most of the Moravian settlements that are going to be founded have a widow's house, but not a widower's house. Any idea why you would need special housing for women who've lost their spouse and not for men? Women live longer. Women live longer, even in those days. Absolutely right. Also, women uh, in Europe and America don't have the same legal rights as men. And, you know, and if you didn't have a son to take care of you, uh, women are more vulnerable to poverty and so forth. Uh, they also did not like to let men stay unmarried long. And this, this is actually, there's, it's still this way in many countries. Uh, widowers die quicker than widows uh, if they don't get remarried. So they would, they would work on that. Um, the choir ribbons were just to show which choir you're in, what color. And you know the pink and, uh, for single sisters, blue for married, and red for women. Uh, for, uh, I mean, um, white for widows. Um, now, within this choir system, uh, the great innovation of Zinzendorf was to see the advantage of this for people's spiritual, emotional, and physical health. Uh, so they have their own special hymns, uh, their own worship services. Uh, they eat together. They cook together. Married were a little different. but uh, And you had someone who was called the choir helper who met with you on a regular basis for counseling. It wasn't like Roman Catholic confession having to go to a priest and say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. I have insulted Chaz Snyder seven times just today. Uh, I do hereby repent and I will say 12 Ave Marias and, uh, uh, and take him to the movies tomorrow. No, uh, it was much more of a counseling session. Uh, it was much more of a what's on your heart? What is troubling you? What, is, what worries you? And it was especially important for those people going through the storms of puberty and all the identity changes that happened with this. And people were trained to help people through this. Um, 
It was an incredibly effective system, highly controversial. This is one of the things that really brought a lot of opposition to the Moravians because the nuclear family was not the basis of the society. And part of what you agreed to as parents is that the church helped raise your children. And the most important and controversial thing is that parents didn't get to arrange the marriages for their children, which is the way it was done almost everywhere. Children didn't get to arrange, or they're not children anymore, but young people didn't arrange their own marriages. The choir helpers helped arrange marriages even because everything was to be beneficial. You didn't, um, your, parent, your dad didn't determine what your job is going to be. You know, just because your dad's the plumber doesn't mean you become the plumber. You might uh, become a missionary. You might become a potter. Uh, literacy was incredibly high in these Moravian settlements because they're teaching people in the choirs how to read, write, uh, all of this. So wonderful, wonderful things we could go into a lot more detail in, or you can read my book, Community of the Cross, Penn State University Press. <laughs> I think used, it's $300, new, 50. I don't know how Amazon works. Anyway, uh, it's so weird. So um, now uh, we could go on more on that, but just uh, I mentioned the missions. Uh, the missions start very, uh, very soon. Uh, the mission to Europe was called the Diaspora, and the missionaries worked with the permission of, uh, of uh, parish priests to start up little societies, groups. If you've ever heard of the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, his father was head of the Moravian Society in Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, uh, Kierkegaard grew up singing Zinzendorf's hymns in Danish. Um, then they you know, were inspired by the story by meeting the enslaved person Anthony and hearing of the hardships in St. Thomas to send missionaries out there. Um, they innovated in mission. Most important thing is you need to learn the language of the people. And when you weren't learn someone's language, what else do you learn? Culture. Their culture. And how do you learn a language? I mean, really learn it. Relationship. You got to talk to people. Because language isn't just the words, but it's also the mannerisms. It's all of these things. Missionaries had to figure out, how do we translate all of this uh, Christian stuff into languages that, you know, they believed you could do this in every language in the world. Cherokee, uh, Inuktitut, uh, all these languages. Sometimes you got to translate loosely. One of my favorite stories is the missionaries get to Greenland and um, the Lutheran missionaries had spent years trying to educate the Greenlanders on what sheep were so they would understand how Jesus was the good shepherd. And don't know if you know this, there are no sheep in Greenland. Uh, they had no idea what the missionaries are talking about. The Moravians get there and after a couple of years they realize, wow, everyone's life depends on seals. You know, the... Uh, and so instead of calling Jesus, you know, the Lamb of God, they said he's the seal of God who gives his life so you can live. Uh, and, you know, 
Not everybody likes that kind of translation. I think it's amazing. Um, Zinzendorf said, everyone in the world knows there's God. There are so many religions in the world. Uh, you don't have to go out there and be philosophers. You go and you tell the story of Jesus. Because what people don't know is that God loves each of us with an infinite love and is willing, willing to share our life to the point where he allowed himself to be killed by us and triumphed despite that. So just tell the story. Um, tell it in terms they can understand. Um, they intentionally went to the people that Europeans had declared aren't human beings. Whether they enslaved people, indigenous people, uh, the folks who were not people, they came with the biblical message that you are loved. Um, and they sent lay people as missionaries. People who uh, could make a living on their own, who didn't need a paycheck, uh, who didn't have a university degree, but had hearts and minds uh, that were consistent and who could go and who were going out of love for people, not out of conquest. Um, the, um, they made a lot of mistakes in the early mission. So Leonard Dober, the first missionary to St. Thomas, was a potter master potter, expected to make his living by pottery. Guess what you don't have in St. Thomas? Clay. Clay. <laughs> they sent Christian David, a carpenter, uh, to Greenland. Guess what you don't have in Greenland? Trees. So it took a while to get all this, all this worked out. Not all the missions succeeded. Sometimes they got kicked out. Georg Schmidt a uh, missionary to South Africa got kicked out of, by the Dutch authorities uh, because he was uh, successful in his mission to the Khoi people and the Dutch did not view the Khoi as people. Um, he also wasn't a Calvinist and all these other problems. Um, but by the time Zinzendorf died, there are Moravian missionaries from Greenland to South Africa um, the Americas, all over, even Egypt. Um, now, they also began sending out, uh, building new settlements on the Heronhut model. And some of the things we associate with um, Moravians actually started in a place called Herrenhag uh, in Germany, uh, which uh, Herrenhag in Germany, Bethlehem in um, North America were the two big new settlements and they did a lot more, they, they innovated even more in these places. Um, so things like uh, uh, Christmas Eve candlelight service with the candles, that started in Herrenhag, or actually Marion born next to Herrenhag, 1747. Pastors wearing the surplus, white surplus, that started in Herrenhag. Uh, probably the uh, pastor going out to serve communion started there as well. In other words, it was still a creative activity. And then they expanded to, um, they had settlements in England and Northern Ireland, um, uh, Bethlehem in Pennsylvania, Salem here in North Carolina, 
Um, Christiansfeld in Denmark, which is a World Heritage Site now. Um, and many of these settlements also established boarding schools that became quite famous. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the principles of the old Moravian Church that we talked about last week and the new Moravian Church is the fundamental task, duty, privilege of a pastor is to be a teacher. First and foremost, other things are important, but you are always a teacher, and not just a teacher of the Bible, but teaching children to read, write. Uh, and these Moravian schools were quite advanced for their time. Gradually, uh, what began as a movement uh, slowly becomes a church. It's not until 1756, What's that, 30 years after August 13th, that Herrenhut, the people in Herrenhut can be separate from the Lutheran Church of Bertelsdorf and serve communion and do their own things. It happened a little quicker in America. Uh, part of the process of becoming uh, a church is um, David Nitschmann, not the martyr, and Zinzendorf are ordained as bishops by the grandson of Comenius. So he recognized what Zinzendorf was doing as the fulfillment of his grandfather's prayer. Um, they began to publish their own uh, worship books and liturgy books. They published thousands, even though there were only hundreds of people in the church. Why would you do that? Who's singing all these hymns? People outside the Moravian church. Uh, I'm at, I, I used to sometimes put this as a final exam question. Uh, how would um, uh, Zinzendorf and Spangenberg, who we'll talk about next week, have approached the internet? And Spangenberg would definitely be the parental controls, the, the bands. Zinzendorf would have been, oh, wow. <laughs> this is great. You mean Eight billion people can sing my hymns? I would love this. Um, they publish so much for other people, not just for them. Um, one of the great mo mo uh, moments was when they were, uh, the British Parliament officially recognized the Moravian Church as an ancient and Episcopal church and gave the church uh, the privilege to work throughout British lands and establish congregations, establish schools, and so forth. Um, now, we're, uh, we're running out of time. Uh, um, could talk much more about Zinzendorf's theology, just uh, uh, real briefly a couple of high points of Moravian theology at the time. Um, one of the central concepts is that God became a human being in Jesus Christ. And not, uh, and it was actually the creator of humanity became a human. And uh, in, a, in a wonderful and mysterious way, uh, you know, Moravians could sing about, you know, God being born in Bethlehem. Uh, the Mary was a very important part of Moravian devotion because she is not only the one who bore Christ, but taught Christ. And they would, for the children's choirs, they would say, you know, sing songs and things. 
You know, Jesus had to learn how to read and write too. Uh, he had to learn to obey his parents. He had to learn how to uh, dress himself. All these things you're doing, Jesus did. Jesus got sick. Jesus got sad. Uh, Jesus went through puberty and became a man. Uh, you can get through life. Every stage of life is uniquely blessed by Christ. Every woman you meet, you should treat as you would treat the Virgin Mary, with the same love and devotion and respect. Uh, every man you should treat as if he is Christ. Uh, there is no shame in the human body. Uh, it's not punishment that you get sick. People get sick. Even dying is blessed because Jesus died. Uh, and all of this permeates. Um, the sufferings of Christ are, is, are meaningful uh, to us, as well as the teachings of Christ. Most controversial, um, that the Holy Spirit can be called the mother. Because the Holy Spirit gives us life, gives us new life, nourishes us, protects us, and cares for us. Well, all of this was very controversial. Some of it's still controversial. I have several volumes of literature called Anti-Zinzendorfiana uh, that was published by professional theologians and uh, pastors. Even John Wesley published something against the Moravians. Moravians were accused of undermining the social order with their settlements, accused of uh, socialism. Uh, one of the most controversial things is, what do you mean you're educating women and letting them preach and serve communion? Uh, all of these things. Some people accuse the Moravians of secretly being Catholic because they wore robes and had candles uh, and artwork in church. All of this. Um, uh, what I have found in teaching this stuff over the last uh, few decades is the things that in the 18th century were most controversial and problematic about the Moravians are what people in the world today are most interested in and are excited by this. Um, so there's a lot we can learn. Uh, Zinzendorf died in 1760. The church became more conservative. We can talk about that next week. Uh, but next week, we will focus on what all this has to do with us here in North Carolina.